You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, we're going to talk about making machine learning software. Yeah, it's, you know, this is a funny topic. Recently, I've been chatting with some folks who have been thinking about how to build big machine learning systems. In particular, talking to some folks who are, who are I think, good engineers and really excited about machine learning, but maybe haven't done a ton of, of sort of ML um, across a lot of different a lot of different areas. And a fairly common pattern that I run into in talking to folks like this is they're super excited and the first thing they want to do is really come up with the perfect kind of language or library or sort of set of modules to support all the different kinds of machine learning that you'd like to do. And you also see this pattern often in this proliferation of startups that exist where it's pretty clear that a couple of undergrads took a machine learning course got really excited about trying to build machine learning in the cloud, machine learning as a service. Machine learning for your dog. Exactly. And and so then they would go off and and then start thinking about abstractions that would enable that to happen. And the problem is, is that it's actually very, very hard to come up with abstractions that are interestingly universal. I mean, this is obviously a problem in general for software engineering, but I find it exceptionally hard in machine learning. And so I've been trying to think a little bit lately about why that is and what makes it hard. And also, I should say, one of the reasons you can kind of tell that this is hard is because machine learning as a field has sort of been around for, let's say, sort of 30-something years. And it's always been sort of a part of computer science, broadly speaking. And computer scientists love to think about abstractions and love to release software. And so... Um, one might reasonably be surprised that there is not the toolkit for doing machine learning, that there is not already a software package uh, that solves these problems extremely well and that everybody obviously uses because it's the right way to do it. And that might sort of give some indication that um, that this is a hard problem, the fact that there isn't actually sort of a set of tools that dominate the field. And I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that even though machine learning as a field is is sort of 30 years old and as a kind of a research area, it's much older than that. Uh, it's still immature in the sense that there's a kind of hodgepodge of different ideas that we all lump together in machine learning, different philosophies about how to go about it, different ways to formalize the problems. It's kind of a big tent with a lot of different things. In some ways, it's an agglomeration of several different subfields that only maybe a little bit talk to each other. To give you some examples, obviously we have people on the sort of like, say, learning theory side of things who are focused mostly on proving important results. Uh, We have people who focus on reinforcement learning that really care a lot about sequential decision making. There are people whose primary areas to think about optimization, um, and maybe they focus primarily on building better convex optimization procedures. There's Bayesian machine learning, where people like to build big probabilistic graphical models and manipulate those. There's interesting new stuff going on in sort of combinatorial machine learning using notions like submodularity. Obviously, now there's deep learning, which is about constructing big composable differentiable functions. The list really goes on and on. And a lot of these things just really don't look very much like each other. And the modules that support one might be wildly inappropriate for another. And so it becomes really hard to think of building a single system that can actually accomplish a lot of these different kinds of uh, a lot of these different kinds of needs and the single systems that people build if they're successful it's because they solve a particular aspect of it very well so i think right now in deep learning we're seeing some really nice toolkits things like torch things like tensorflow and theano where you know they solve a particular kind of problem well which is let's have automatic differentiation Um, applied efficiently to 
uh, a set of composable functions that we often reuse over and over again in these architectures. We've also seen some success in Bayesian modeling with uh, tools like Stan and Bugs and um, Infer.net and a few different things where you can build probabilistic graphical models and then do inference in them in some interesting way. And then there's also other kinds of tools for specific cases that have been successful. Uh, you know, if you want to do big, sparse logistic regression, then Valpo Rabbit is this very successful tool for doing that. Um, if you want to do uh, support vector machines, SVM Lite is this, this sort of classic tool. And what you see is that each of these little sub-communities has identified maybe a set of abstractions that work well for, for them, and they build tools to support them. But there's but it's really hard to come up with something that actually crosses all of these different ways of thinking about machine learning problems. And at the end of the day, people are actually doing something really quite different uh, from each other. And often we can map, say, hinge loss into some uh, you know, pseudo likelihood for a Bayesian model and things like that. I mean, it's possible to do that, but it doesn't necessarily usually often lead to, uh, to interesting improvements in modularity. I think what you wind up seeing is that a lot of the most successful tools are written where the basic level of abstraction is something like a matrix, hmm. where the, the tools that actually do cross-cut everything are linear algebra libraries. And that, um, and these are kind of maybe the pipes. Maybe these are the standard in and standard out of of the sort of the machine learning world. Um, and TensorFlow actually, I mean, puts that even in the name, right? Where what you're passing around are the, you know, are these structured matrices, um, and that that winds up being the kind of the the language that everything speaks. And so, hence, you see. Um, you know, things like Python and NumPy being very successful because they basically are ways to to plug together different pieces of linear algebra. So we have a ways to go yet. I'm, I, you know, I hold out hope that as we, um, as we learn more about the world and as we see a lot of these different subfields start to sort of come together. For example, you know, we're seeing more and more really interesting work at the boundary between, let's say, Bayesian methods and deep learning and, and things like that. As these subfields start to really come together, then maybe there's hope that we'll find ways to to have kind of the one uh the one true system but we're not we're not quite there yet well if you want to learn more about making software for machine learning you can go to our website thetalkingmachines.com listener question on talking machines comes from Arun. He asks, when you encounter a new large data set, what's your personal favorite list of exploratory techniques and tools to get a good sense of the data? And also, when you encounter a classification or regression problem, what's your favorite off list of off-the-shelf or baseline techniques that you use to take shots of the problem? Thanks. This is a really great question to ask because it highlights something that I tend to try to preach a lot, which is that you should start with the simplest things you can think of and you want to get a handle on your data, and you should not apply something complex until you sort of have a, an understanding of, of the data's properties, basically. In particular, you want to apply simple things first because they tell you how hard the problem is. Presumably, you come at the problem with some idea of what good performance is, and if you get good performance with the simplest thing, then great. So there's two things here. So one is kind of exploratory analysis, and the second is, second is thinking about um, simple supervised models. So for exploratory analysis, my favorite thing to do first is probably to look at histograms of the different dimensions. You kind of learn something rapidly from 
whether or not the data tend to just have a few distinct values or whether or not they tend to be approximately Gaussian distributed or whether it's very heavy tailed. You can kind of get a sense of what the properties of each dimension are separately. And you can also do the same thing with scatter plots. Step two after that is then to probably do something like principal components analysis, where I would take a look at the, uh, essentially that's looking at the correlation structure. So I have a hundred dimensional data, but is it really kind of actually 10 dimensional? I'm not sure. And so I'll, um, you know, maybe run PCA, have a look at what pops out. And in particular, look at the eigenvalues of that. I'll look and see if when I put the eigenvalues in order, do they tend to drop off very quickly or do they tend to decay very slowly? Um, if they drop off very quickly, then that sort of says that there's a lot of structure in the data and that the effective dimensionality is probably lower. Uh, if it decays more slowly, then that means it's going to be harder to find, uh, probably probably going to be harder to find structure. This is assuming the data are real, are, are real valued, by the way. And then I would say, you know, some other natural things to do might be to, um, particularly if there's a low dimensional structure, you could imagine, um, you know, there's there's an interesting sort of off the shelf set of of, um, of nonlinear dimensionality reduction tools that, that you can use. Um, TSNE is a popular one, ISOMAP, LLE. There's a, there's a few different things like this that are kind of like either variants on PCA or variants on uh, multidimensional scaling with some kind of interesting additional nonlinearity. Sometimes those can help you figure out whether there's a manifold or whether there's um, maybe cluster structure and so on. And this can be helpful for identifying important variations. Then on the supervised side, there's a couple of things to do first. So if you have a regression problem, you should do least squares first. And in fact, if you have a classification problem, maybe you do least squares first too, uh, because it has an analytic solution and it's very straightforward and um, it'll tell you something right away about uh, whether or not your problem is hard. After that, I would say that uh, if you have a classification problem, the, um, the two kind of obvious things to try uh, if you want to do linear classification are something like you know, a linear SVM or a, uh, or logistic regression. If you think that if you have discrete data and something a little bit more complicated, variations on decision trees are very popular and interpretable. And, um, and again, there's very good packages for, for doing that. Another thing you can do that's kind of very simple off the shelf is do something like K nearest neighbors classification or regression for that matter. And uh, again, it may kind of work out of the box. And, and it's a really obvious thing to compare to because it doesn't really require um, a lot of work. That is to say that I wouldn't go for deep neural networks and complicated things like that until I felt like I really needed that additional sort of nonlinear structure. Uh, or I should say, if I feel like there's going to be invariances that I'd like to build in. So images are, are a classic example of this where you know, I want to be able to know about the spatial structure of an image or speech. I want to know about the temporal structure of speech, you know, so things like that. I would say that might be a situation where you would, you would try something like a neural network a little bit earlier, but most of the time I wouldn't go after sort of complicated things until I felt like I really needed them. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, ask us at TLKNGMCHNS on Twitter or thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. guest on Talking Machines is Rob Tipshrani of the Statistics Department at Stanford. When we spoke to him at NIPS in 2015, I asked him the first question we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? 
Um, well, I started, I did an undergraduate, I'm Canadian, I did an undergraduate in mathematics at Waterloo. Although near the end of my undergraduate, I was, math was getting to be too abstract for my taste, so I started uh, in computer science I was interested in, but uh, when I found statistics, I found a nice compromise between, a nice place to apply mathematics, but I also feel like you're doing something, uh, something useful, um, and, and of course involving computers. And this was in the 70s, I then did a, um, so undergraduate, a master's at Toronto, a PhD in statistics at Stanford, and returned home to Toronto for 12 years as a professor, and then returned to Stanford to where I am now. And on your on your bio on your website, it says that you were first interested in math in elementary school. Sure. <laughs> Tell me well, about how your your interest started. Well, I mean, math is is fun, and there, there was in Canada, at least there, there was there was math contests almost at every level, like in probably starting in middle school and then high school. So uh, we were encouraged to do mathematics and math problems, and I was a bit of a, a math nerd, quite honestly. So it was fun. Excellent. And um, so one of the things that you're best known for is Lasso. Can right. you sort of introduce us to that? Uh, well, the Lasso is basically a supervised learning method, um, least squares with constraints. So a lot of times with big data nowadays, you have um, more features than there are observations. If you do least squares, simple least squares, you minimize the deviations between the outcome and the prediction, you'll, you'll overfit the data and get basically zero training error. So you need, to, you need to, to regularize somehow. You need to constrain the parameters. And the Lasso is a way of constraining the parameters so that you can't, you don't overfit, and it does so in such a way as to give you what's called a sparse solution. So it chooses the features that it thinks are the most informative, and then discards the ones that aren't. And that's it's called that's called a sparse model, and it's become more and more popular as data has gotten bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean it's been yeah. tremendously influential in like statistical genetics, where right. people want to get rid of. They think it, the the uh, some phenotype only depends on a small number of say SNPs and. And then people really like the lasso and like the group lasso for discovering the, uh, you know, which SNPs seem to matter. So maybe could you sort of talk a little bit about the intuition about why the L1 regularization results in a sparse solution? Um, well, I guess intuitively, I mean, I don't to do it intuitively. The the uh, constraint region is it's got um, it's not smooth. So essentially, you get uh, uh, discrete events happen that uh, as soon as you get as the amount of penalty on the on, on the regularizer gets large enough, things things just drop out. Whereas if you have a smoother penalty like uh, um, L2 regularization, it's you never get exact zeros because things just shrink continuously to zero. So it's sort of a discrete shrinkage operator that has a breaking point. And at some point, when the regularization is too large, things are forced to zero. So I don't know if that was helpful, but it's yeah. It's, yeah. Well, so I mean. One of the sort of intuitions that seems like people ha has grown up in the wake of of this work has has been estimators like, um, for example, the horseshoe estimator, which uh, sort of tries to tease apart the the effect of the regularization hmm. near zero and the and the effect of the regularization in the uh, in the tail. Right. So how does that sort of interact with um, you know with with thinking about why the you know why these zeros arise? Is it is it mostly because kind of near zero, unlike say L two, you, you continue to get a sort of shrinkage towards towards uh, sparsity. Well, I think it's it's more a matter of sort of a, a signal plus noise model. So that you're thinking that what you're seeing is a bunch is a bunch of signals with noise added, and then some noise variables with noise added. So that what Lasso does it tries to denoise everything by a constant amount, and leave the signal. Whereas the L2 shrinkage is a, a model that's, which says there's more noise for for bigger signals. So really, just a signal plus noise model leads to the L1 regularization. So one of the things that I've that I, I've been wondering about is that on one hand, in the sort of least squares setting for 
like regression, um, you know, Lasso has been tremendously influential. And then it almost seems like in a in a parallel and separate line of work, people have been exploring this idea of compressive sensing, mm-hmm. which and you might think of as a kind of unsupervised uh, way of of also using an L1 penalty to identify sparse, you know, sparse right. solutions and sparse structure and data. And, you know, maybe this is this is kind of an outsider's perspective, but I, I've found it surprising that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of overlap in, in the sort of conversations about these two methods. And I was curious, and, and in fact, you know, in the Stanford stats department, you some of your colleagues are some of the people working on this. Right. Um, and I was curious if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between these two these two methods. Well, I mean, to be honest, I only learned about it the last few years myself. I mean, compressive sensing comes out of uh, really the double E, I think, and you know, people like David Donahoe and Emmanuel Candace, his office is actually right across from mine in Stanford. So um, you're right, they, they were developed quite separately, but there clearly is overlap in the ideas, the idea of a, of a sparse signal that you can, uh, you can recover using a you know, compressive sensing, sensing model. So I think it's, it's not a matter of, I think it's just sort of the way that things developed in separate fields, and um, now I think both fields are understanding more the overlap and the relationship between the methods. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. is is the fundamental intuition though? Would you say is the same that you, you're sort of looking for shrinkage, but it's it's now shrinkage to find a sparse basis rather exactly. than yeah. right? Okay, so for our our sort of listeners, so compressive sensing is this idea. Um, I think of it as a generalization of the way that we find pseudo inverses when we solve linear systems. So we have a uh, so so typically, if we have some underdetermined linear system then there's an, there's an infinity of possible solutions. And so the question is, what is our criterion for choosing one solution? Right. The sort of thing you learn as an undergrad is the Moore-Penrose pseudo-inverse, which uh, also appears in linear regression. And, uh, and, and that is essentially choosing the one that minimizes the L2 norm. Uh, but that's only one possible choice. And compressive sensing takes advantage of, of the idea that if we want sparse solutions, then you could have this convex relaxation which gives it, uh, causes you to think about an L1 uh, penalty instead. Yeah, and I think in both cases, regression and compressive sensing, they're both operating with what I call a, a bet on sparsity principle. Like if what you're looking for is dense, for example, in regression, if, if most or all the coefficients are actually non-zero, you're going to need an awful lot of data. Your n's got to be very large relative to p to recover it. But if you bet on sparsity, saying, well, I'm going to hope that what I'm looking for is sparse, you, you can get away with far fewer observations per, per variable. And the same with compressive sensing. So... Uh, the bet on sparsity is making a, an assumption, a, you know, that a, a hunch that, that things are actually sparse. But the thing is, if you're wrong about the 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 that assumption that the actual uh, what you're looking for is actually dense, you're going to need a lot. There, there's really uh, no good method to, to recover it unless you have an awful lot of data. So it's it's a bet on sparsity as a assumption, but it's one which really you you can't get around unless you have enormous amounts of data relative to the number of parameters you're looking for. No, I mean in your yeah. work, you've you've shown that there is this gap too as well, right? That so, can you talk about the difference in sort of how much data you need, like the rates essentially? Uh, well, I, I should say uh, I'm not really a theoretician, so a lot of people have shown. shown I mean, I, I could I could quote rates, but I probably couldn't explain them very well. But um, uh, in certain conditions, you can you can you can get away with certain, you know a small number of observations per parameter, as long as as the the, the signal variables and the, and the noise variables have have, a, have low correlation in a certain sense. You can't expect the lasso or L1 constraints to separate signal from noise if there's too much overlap in, in the eigenspaces. One thing you've done that's been very influential has been co-authoring the book Elements of Statistical Learning, um, and uh, you know a book that's kind of required reading for um, people in machine learning who uh, are, you know 
are interested in bringing um, a sort of more rigorous statistical approach to to machine learning. Um, maybe can you talk a little bit about about the, the kind of maybe the experience of that and how you, you've updated over, over the years and um, and also how you know you know whether I don't know whether it's been interesting to sort of try to continue to engage with like the NIPS community relative to the content of the book. I, 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 yeah, tell well, me your story about this. Right. I mean, how the book, I mean, I, I graduated in 85, went back to Toronto and was, you know, I guess a pretty um, uh, standard applied statistician. And then I got to know Jeff Hinton at Toronto, who's, I guess you was your postdoc advisor at one point. Right. Jeff Hinton and a number of his students and postdocs and I started going to NIPS with Jerry Friedman, Trevor Hasty, Leo Bryman. Leo Bryman is actually, tomorrow I'm giving the Leo Bryman lecture, and it's named after Leo. Um, and the machine learning community had quite an impact on us in that they really, um, first of all, they were fitting models with more parameters and observations, which was, that time, that was absolutely crazy. Uh, how, how dare they do that, right? That's you're going to overfit. Uh, people in machine learning were fearless. They were they were fitting models of size that we couldn't imagine. And we thought at first we thought they were crazy, honestly. But... After a while, we got to appreciate their ideas, and we saw, for example, in the early days of neural networks, how effective they were. So Trevor and I and Jerry tried to really understand what were some of the important principles that were going on in machine learning, and they weren't really connected to statistics. They, they were really in terms of uh, algorithms. There wasn't really a model you could see. Whenever, whenever Jeff explained something to me, he was always, he'd always draw some picture on the board with boxes and crazy arrows. He never wrote a model down. So I... I I love Jeff, but I can never understand to this day what he's talking about. Right? <laughs> but I love hearing his talks because I know there's something good there if I could just understand it. And usually one of his students then explains it to me later. But um, So that book really arose out of our, partly arose out of our trying to understand what people in machine learning would do and trying to connect it to the statistical framework. And we did that with things like boosting and random forests, neural networks. We helped to build sort of a, a model framework around machine learning and related ideas and, re and related it to statistical ideas. So that's been a really great satisfaction for us to, to write the book, and then we updated it in 98. We're adding a lot more on on um, current methods because it's still a very evolving field. Uh, and, of course, even that, you know, if we, we were to write another edition, we'd have to write a whole section on deep learning and related, related uh, methods. But it's certainly, it's, I think writing a book, I've, I find, is great because it has a real impact. Like, when you write papers, you're lucky if, you know, a small number of people read them. When you write a book, you really can have, impact on students and a lot of people who in fields who wouldn't couldn't read technical papers but can read a book and that tries to tie it all together so it's, it has been a great satisfying experience for us and yeah. and then you followed on with a, a really interesting new book introduction to statistical right. learning right um and and this seems like it takes a very different approach like a very sort of applied approach based right. on on r and it avoids exactly. a lot right. of the a lot of the math even sort of linear algebra of right. the earlier book can you talk about sort of maybe the, the target audience for that? Um, well, and there's also an online uh, a MOOC that we, we run every year at Stanford based on that book. So the target audience is people, maybe uh, undergraduate, senior undergraduate students with quantitative skills uh, and, and master students who know a little bit of statistics but have never really been exposed to modern statistics and machine learning. So it's sort of a, an, an entree to the more advanced books of like our first book. And it's been very successful, I think, um, largely because of the online course and the fact that there's R labs right there so students can learn how to code the, the techniques in real time. So one of the things, you know, um, you mentioned a minute ago talking about coming to NIPS and, and right. sort of interacting with, with the machine learning community and, and Jeff and, and folks. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, for example, late, 
Leo Bryman talked about is the difference between the two cultures of, right. of statistics and machine learning. And, and this is something that, you know, uh, you know, that comes up quite often where, you know, often, uh, you know, machine learning has occasionally reinvented methods that are, are long known in statistics. And, um, uh, but at the same time, perhaps machine learning sort of adopted, um, you know, maybe more aggressively pursued, um, you know, the, the sort of computational aspects of statistics, um, you know, certainly things like, or not maybe certainly, but maybe things like MCMC and some other things have been, have got, have got a lot more attention kind of maybe uh, in machine learning than in, than in statistics for a while. So, but I, I'm curious what, you know, what your perspective is on this kind of, this kind of gap uh, these days. I mean, culturally and, and, you know, in terms of publication models and, um, I, f I find statisticians often have an opinion about this and, I, and yeah. I'd be curious what yours is. Well, I, sh I think there's a gap and maybe it's growing larger because, uh, I mean, quite honestly, being at this meeting for the last few days, most of the talks really kind of foreign looking to me. Like they're mostly on deep learning and um, optimization methods, which are important, but they aren't really of sort of central interest to statisticians. So I think the gap between the sort of um, predictive models on the one hand, and try to infer, infer from data with probabilistic models. That, that was the, the gap that Leo talked about. That's probably growing even larger. Um, I think both are important, but the machine learning community really is focused heavily on, on, on predictive models, especially with the, you know, with uh, the explosion in data science and trying to predict things in every industry now, like you know, ad clicks and sales and everything else, right? It's very, very predictive. And people in machine learning are doing a very good job of that. And uh, so, Quite naturally, their focus is more and more on predictive models. We're trying to understand what the what the data is saying, in terms of what features are important, which is more important like in, in medical science. That's not it seems uh, not as emphasized in machine learning, but still very important for statisticians. Yeah, certainly things like uh, identifiability and interpretability right. are, are sort of not on the radar right. of of machine learning researchers broadly speaking. Yeah. I mean, occasionally they are, but yeah. these are you know the it seems like statisticians you know correctly sort of. Yeah you know, view a lot of these problems directly through the lens of estimation and understanding yeah. precisely what's being estimated. Um, and, and machine learning being about prediction cares less about this kind of, uh, you know, looking under the hood. Uh, quite Which often. is probably yeah. why I'm, I'm somewhat stressed about my talk tomorrow, because it's, it's going to be about exactly that, about trying to infer uh, effects from the size of effects from data. So it's really on the problem that statisticians worry about. And I want to convince, try to convince the machine learning audience tomorrow that A, that's still important, and B, here's some new ways to do it. Well, I mean, so, I think yeah. I think one thing that's worth observing is that although it's true that deep learning has a lot of visibility right now, you know, it, it still represents a sort of um, a corner of of the larger machine learning area, yeah. and uh, you know, and I, I, perhaps you saw like Zubin's talk mm -hmm. uh, today. Yes. You know, I, I think of Zubin as being somebody who uh, at least sort of dabbles in in statistics as a statistician right. knows it. And then there are sort of other folks that 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 straddle these areas more and more. I think of like perhaps like um, like David Dunson, mm -hmm. um, you know, who may not be at NIPS, but you know might go to like AI stats and and things that have a little bit more machine learning flavor, but would also identify as a card carrying statistician. Right. Um, the uh, uh, that is to say that deep learning, um, you know, it's it's interesting, but it's it's uh, you know I always say it's it's adaptive basis function regression, right? Um, right. And uh, and and that's a good idea, but it's not it's not sort of uh, magical. I, I was curious, you know, so in the in the sort of the world of of you know the combination of sort of sparsity and interpretability, which um, uh, you know has kind of been the theme here. Um, I, I feel like I, I saw recently a, a paper on Archive that talked about that in the sort of uh, optimization path of of Lasso, 
if you're going to interpret kind of the, the, the zeros and non-zeros that you find that, that the sort of uh, the, the, the false discoveries uh, happen surprisingly early in the regularization path. And this is work uh, by, by Candace. Candace and student, yes. Uh, oh, was it? Was it? Can, I was yeah, thinking it was okay. Sue and Candace, I think, okay. is a recent paper. Yeah. And and this is this is something that I find kind of surprising. Yeah. Um, I, at least I I found it um, surprising because that you would, you know, my my sort of th- thinking was that that if you, I mean, well, because it, it sort of in a sense really draws a line between a very hard line between the things you discover with lasso and, and like forward stepwise regression and kind of other ideas that people like yeah. for, for selection. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about. Well, I, I uh, actually read that paper recently and I don't exactly uh, agree. Well, I have a sort of fundamental problem with it and Emmanuel doesn't agree yet. So I don't know who's right, but the problem is what do you mean by a false discovery? So suppose you have two, suppose you have a population with two variables, highly correlated and a and B and the, the first variable a has signal, but the second variable has a coefficient of zero. Okay, that's the population. And now the lasso goes along and it picks variable B, as it might well, because they're highly correlated. Now, under the strict definition of false discovery, that's a, fa- that's a false discovery. But you can hardly blame the lasso or any, any other method for picking that variable. So what you actually mean by a false positive, I think, has to be re- re-examined when you're talking about uh, a situation with correlated variables. And there are ways to define fa- I think false discoveries more appropriately, in which, which case... If in, in that situation, if if the procedure has not entered A yet, then that B variable is not considered a false positive under a, a different definition. Whereas if A is already in the model, adding B is a false positive, which to, to me seems more sensible. If you adjust your, the way you view false positives, then the, the phenomenon they've observed goes away. So I, I'm hmm. I'm not sure of it yet, but I have serious doubts about whether, I mean, the math is correct, but whether the interpretation is appropriate is I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. but this this setting is something that that really comes up a lot in practice. I mean, again, thinking about like statistical genetic problems, right. uh, where people really love this this kind of thing, you know, where you have this situation where you have this, you know, you imagine anyway that maybe there's the SNP that really matters, right. and then it's it's um, it sort of tends to correlate with a large number of other SNPs due to like link, uh, linkage disequilibrium, right. and um, and so there is a really fundamental question of, you know. You know, is it correct? You know, if you include a SNP that is tech, that is not actually the causal, the causal SNP, right. um, but it isn't you know strongly correlated with all the rest, is that is that kind of the right answer or the, or the wrong answer? Right. Um, yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. and it sounds like what you're yeah. saying is that it, it's kind of it's kind of the right answer to include that. Yes. Um, in that, one in could the, argue that, and if you do, then then this phenomenon of lots of false positives early in the path seems to go away. So, hmm. and I, I mean, I've discussed it with Emmanuel, and he doesn't agree, but it's still an ongoing conversation. Um, is there, I mean, one of the things that seems like you're, you know, like you, you know, your work on the, like the group lasso is trying to tackle some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've, I found, um, a little bit unsatisfying about the group lasso is, is the hard boundaries between, between the groups. Uh, whereas in, in like genetic types, pro, genetics type problems, you often don't have these kind of, these kind of hard boundaries, mm-hmm. but I'm sure you must, uh, you, you must be thinking about, uh, softer variants of these, of these kinds of methods. Right. Um, I, you know, is is there any hope for this, or maybe you've already solved it? And I just well, didn't I mean, the actually, they've been solved. So the group lasso wasn't my idea; it was by uh, Juan and Lynn. Sorry, That's yes. and, um, but but you wrote this paper, this follow-on paper that sort of uh, right. Uh, yeah. It's true, and but there's also something called the overlap group lasso, uh, which, by the way, not to uh, as a plug, but I have a, a, a book, that, a new book this year by with Trevor and, and and Martin Wainwright on sparsity in the lasso, and there's a whole chapter on on group penalties. 
Um, but there already is something called the Overlap Group Lasso. Mm. You heard of this? I, I haven't. It's yeah. uh, by some French people that uh, sounds like it solves what you're asking for. It allows cool. the groups to overlap. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So what, what else are you up to? I mean, we focused on a, on yeah. maybe like a, a corner yeah. of your work, but oh. you, you do a lot of other stuff. Uh, well, I mean, I do work a lot in sparsity and related and related problems. And what I'm going to talk about tomorrow is actually occupied a lot of my work the last few last few years uh, with Jonathan Taylor, a number of people at Stanford, and actually my son Ryan. Another Ryan, you may have met Ryan Tipsharani. I don't. I don't oh. I, so my okay. son's a statistician, actually, at, at Carnegie Mellon University. He's at uh, statistics and, and uh, machine learning. But the topic is uh, post-selection inference. So it's along this idea of inference. So suppose, for example, you've uh, suppose you've run the lasso on some data, and you've got so you've, you, it picks some SNPs. It picks ten SNPs out of a possible thousand or something. And now you want to know well, how how strong are the effects of these? Like, can you can we get a p-value for these SNPs, or can we t- give a confidence interval for how large the effects are? Now that there's no easy way to do that, at least traditionally, because y- you've you've uh, cherry-picked the, the the data, right? The lasso, when it it fits at a given value of the bound, it finds the strongest effects it can find that satisfy the constraint. So it's doing a greedy search essentially. Same with fourth stepwise regression. If you go apply fourth stepwise regression for say five steps, choose the best five variables out of a thousand. It's cherry-picked very heavily. It's chosen the best five variables you can find. If you then pretend like you didn't select and, and treat those five variables as if they were pre-chosen and apply standard statistical theory for p-values and confidence intervals, you'll be way, way off in terms of type 1 error and coverage. So the new work we're doing is trying to get um, p-values and confidence intervals post-selection so that they properly adjust for the fact that you've, you've, you've done a greedy search prior to... Um, to the stage now we're trying to, to try and do inference. So trying to get an idea of how strong is the evidence given that I've selected from the data. So we have new mathematical tools and software now, which for lasso, forward stepwise regression, lots of other models, which uh, post-selection will give you if, you, if you if you clearly say, here's how I selected the model, you can, we can give you confidence intervals and p-values, which have, have coverage um, post-selection. In other words, given that this model was chosen, under the null hypothesis, they have the desired type one error or desired coverage. So, is this sort of um, complementary to sort of uh, like FDR type analysis? Yes, yeah, very complementary. So, 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 false discovery analysis works basically. We have a bunch of hypotheses, just um, in a marginal way. But for when you do, do do regression or lasso regression, it's now it's no longer just a marginal problem. You're looking at a, a multivariate model. So, it's it's basically uh, false discovery rate methods and Family, families, families, error rate methods applied to the, to regression, and it gets quite a bit harder because there's a structure of the model, correlations between variables you have to account for. Sure enough, I mean the stronger the correlation, or the the the, the larger the number of variables you start with, the greater the adjustments, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. So we can now do this kind of post-selection adjustment for things like uh, principal components regression as well. So suppose, sorry, PCA. Suppose you want to find the rank of a PCA. That's a common problem, right? I mean, you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Our principal components, what's, what rank should you use? Well, sort of the generic solution is to do what's called a scree plot, where yep. you, you plot the eigenvalues and you hope to see a nice big elbow, right? So in the textbooks, there's always an elbow. When you try it with real data, <laughs> there's no elbow. And you think, what am I supposed to do? So we have, you can think of principal components as a forward stepwise regression on eigenvectors, basically. At each sure. stage, you're finding the eigenvectors that best fit the data. And you can flash that into a theory, which gives you exact p-values, for the rank as you increase the rank from zero to one to two, et cetera. So what's the sort of p-value, I mean, what's being estimated? The what's being, well, you're, 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 the p-value, the hypothesis at each stage is that the current rank, say k, is 
sufficient, and the rank of the remaining space is zero. I see. Yeah. I, I see. So yeah. that all the, any other rank you discover is just noise. Right. Exactly. Okay. Does it wind up sort of looking like a the scree plot type selection? Well, not really, because I mean, there's lots of examples. Easy to make an example where the scree plot looks like the elbow's got no elbow, but but the p value trace gives you a very clear decision where to, where to make. So it's using more information than simply the eigenvalues. It's using the eigenvectors as well. Mm. Now it does use normality strongly, so it's not uh, it's not. Well, it's fairly robust, but we're, we're also trying to work on making to make it more robust. I see. So yeah. it, it assumes that you really are, you know, your covariance matrix is, is sort of a, yeah, really the covariance. Yeah. Got it. Right. The, uh, and would this sort of generalize to like factor analysis where you don't necessarily have an orthonormal basis? In principle. Uh, so we've got a lot of very smart grad students who are going to, that's a good idea <laughs> for a thesis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'd like yeah. to ask you a question about the field in general. Yes. Um, collecting data has never been easier. How have you seen the field change or be changed by the ease of, of getting larger and larger data sets? Uh, well, it's, well, it's changed dramatically. I, I mean, most of my work is, I, I'm in the med school at Stanford, I mean, in statistics, but also across point in the medical school. So I see the uh, data collection phenomena in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the biotech area. So, you know, probably every week I'm, a collaborator comes to me with a fancy form of assay they've you know, some fancy thing they've, they've measured about cells, about genes, about proteins, and large numbers of them, um, which may, is a lot of fun, but it means there's a, a large number of features that are measured, typically on a small number of patients still. That's still the bottleneck in medicine, at least. In, in, in other areas, the end can be quite large. If you're, you know, if you're talking about ads or things like that in business, end's also very large. But in the medical area, end is relatively small, and P, number of features is just exploding. So a lot of our job is trying to figure out how to, how to sort of denoise the features, extract the ones that are informative, and put it all together for some, in a useful way for, for medical people, for example, to try to predict which treatments, are, which patients are going to respond to a new, new treatment. That's a big big area now, which I'm start, trying to work more in about trying to, you know, most treatments on the average don't, don't improve upon standard treatments. But for some subsets of the population, maybe people over 50, women perhaps, people with a certain family history, people with a certain... Um, gene profile, right, a new drug might work dramatically better. And to find that, that subset, find a useful subset that has enough people in it that's going to be useful, is of interest to a lot of people in the medical area as well as drug companies, of course. Rob Tibshirani from Stanford University. Hearing his perspective on statistics is just amazing. It's really fantastic. I mean, he's obviously a legend and he's made a tremendous number of contributions. But also his, uh, the book he co-authored, Elements of Statistical Learning, uh, has just had an unbelievable impact on uh, on the field of machine learning and its relationship with statistics. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Mm-hmm.